0: You're listening to 2nd on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from 2nd Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the Associate Pastor for Christian Education. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you and what we have to share. Please pray with me. Amid all the changing words of our generation, O oh Lord, breathe your eternal living word that does not change. Amen i going to ask that you pull out the brand new pew Bibles that are there before you and turn with me to our first reading, which is from Psalm 119. And I should note the page number for our scripture readings is in your bulletin. But I'll be reading from Psalm 119, verses 103 through 105. These verses may sound familiar. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Our second reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and I invite you to turn with me again. Isaiah chapter 40 is actually a poem that was written to the exiles. About some 150 years earlier, the Babylonian Empire had besieged Jerusalem and driven out Jerusalem's leaders and a large part of its population. These people have been away from their home for generations. They have been living and dying and being buried in a land that was not their own. But in chapter 40 in Isaiah, we see a shift. In fact, most scholars call chapter 40 the start of second Isaiah. There's been a change. Historically, there's a new emperor, Cyrus the Great, and he will be the one who actually allows the exiles to return back to Jerusalem. So in chapter 40... The tone changes to a hopeful one. Hear these words from Isaiah 40, verses 8 and 9. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By now, most of you know that I love history. I've spent much of the past week immersed in the how, as in how we came to have this book. I know that the worship and music committee prayed and planned, the session approved, and many of you gave generously so we could have these new Bibles in our pew. But what I mean to say when I've been immersed in the how is that I have been fascinated by the miracle it is that Christians have come to have this book in the first place. We call it a book, but it is a collection of books, really, a library, if you will. The books inside our Bible were written by countless men, probably all men because of their historical contexts, and they were written and copied again and again over the course of centuries. And though the books that make up our Bible were written by humans, we believe they represent the inspired word of God. Humans wrote it down. God inspired it. The very word inspired can be broken down to help explain what I mean. In, the first part, of course, means in. Inspired means breathed. In breathed. God breathed into these pages. When the early church first began, there was no such thing as the Bible, not at least as we know it today. There was the Hebrew Bible, the first part of our Bible we call the Old Testament, but as for the New Testament, there were lots of little books floating around. One community might have a copy of Matthew, another might have a copy of Mark, one might have some of the letters from Paul, while others read and reread threadbare copies of the Acts of the Apostles and the letter of James. The more time passed after Jesus' ascension and before his second return, the clearer it became that the Christian church needed to define what was in and what was out. Other, more troublesome books had begun to pop up, describing odd stories and things that did not fit well with the Jesus the apostles knew and followed. So it became clear that something needed to be done soon, or else it was going to become hard to discern the wheat from the chaff. So church councils were formed to decide what was really inspired by God. These people prayed and researched and sifted through early Christian writings. They asked important questions. Was a particular book being used by the larger Christian community? Was it written by an apostle or at least a close associate to an apostle? These councils helped establish what books went into our canon. They discerned which books were a true witness to an active, moving God and to the life of Jesus Christ. They nailed down what would go into this library of books, written by humans, inspired by God. Just a few days ago, I was in New York City visiting a friend, and while she was at work at her church, I spent hours wandering through the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Specifically, I was looking at old Bibles. The days before the printing press, copies of Scripture were rare, whether we're talking about a whole Bible or just certain books, because it was crazy expensive to own a whole Bible. Scripture had to be copied by hand. And in an era when literacy rates were low, paper and ink and time were dear, Bibles were costly to create. And because they were copied by hand, errors were inevitable. The books of the Bible were originally written in Hebrew and Greek, but the early church translated them into Latin. By quick show of hands, how many of you can actually read or speak Latin? I know Rachel's here. (laughs) Great. I see a few hands, and this is actually better odds than there would have been in most any church in Europe during the medieval era. The priests could read Latin, yet truthfully not even all the priests could actually read Latin. And that was about it. For almost 1,000 years, hardly anyone had access to the Bible. The average Christian relied on priests to read and interpret it, and not every priest's education was equal. And because everyone depended on the clergy to interpret it, some clergy deliberately bended or even lied about what Scripture said to control people and gain power. Translating the Bible into English, or any local language for that matter, gave people freedom. Now the people could encounter God's word directly. But translating a thing creates its own problems, doesn't it? A word or a phrase that is clear in one language may not even exist in another. And if we look back over history, it's easy to see that language is always changing. Words come in and out of style. They change meaning, take on multiple meanings, and new words are invented. The King James Version of the Bible was written in 1611. It made a great deal of sense to Christians in England 400 years ago. But today, it can be confusing to read. For example, Exodus 19 verse 5 in the King James Version reads, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure. Now 400 years ago, peculiar meant unique. But if you look it up on dictionary.com today, unique is not even one of the four definitions it lists. Today, peculiar means strange or unusual or odd. Now, the NRSV, the version we have in our pew, translates that same verse. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Treasured possession. That's more like it. Hadn't you rather be a treasured possession than a peculiar one. That's the difference 400 years can make. The version we're retiring from our p is the Revised Standard Version. It was translated from the original Hebrew and Greek in the 1940s and 50s. The NRSV was also translated from the original Hebrew and Greek and was meant to be a more updated version of the RSV. And I imagine that in another 50 or 70 years from now, Lord willing, Second Presbyterian will be dedicating a new set of pew Bibles, some translation that we haven't even thought of yet. We keep these Bibles in the pew, and we update these Bibles in the pew because we remember a time when this miraculous book was not accessible to people like us. We remember a time when God's Word was held captive by people in power to control the masses and hoard wealth. We remember when it was used the ways it can still be used, if we're not careful, to excuse bad behavior and corrupt systems. We keep these Bibles in the pew and in our homes and on our phones because it is the word of God for the people of God, not the word of God for a few or for the fortunate. There are more versions of the Bible than there has ever been, and there are more copies of this Bible than any other book ever written. People have died over convictions they took in the name of this Bible, and people have died living out the commands to get it in the hands of more people. When I say that I've been considering the how of this book, I also mean that I've been humbly giving thanks for the Christians who risked everything that we might have it here. John Calvin said that the Bible is like eyeglasses that allow us to see God in the world. Without the spectacles of scripture, we are like a person with blurry vision, unable to see God, or to see God in creation. Now, I believe, and I bet many of us believe, that the Bible points us to the living word. Through the work of the Spirit, it invites us to engage its stories, its poetry, its art. But it is only any good if we open it, if we engage it with each other, if we wrestle with it. Ask questions of it and of ourselves. When we encounter the Bible, then we have a lens with which we can see the world that helps us see God at work, even in the simplest and most surprising ways. I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I see of the world, the more I lean on the God I come to find in these pages. I have terrible vision. Each morning I grope for my glasses on my bedside table before I can look to even see what time it is. I am as dependent on my glasses and my contacts as I think we are meant to be on this lens, our scripture. If I didn't have this lens, I don't know what kind of hope I would have left. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. On Thursday, as I traveled back on the train, I thought about our city. I thought about law enforcement officials desperate to find a fugitive, and the difficult but wise call to ask a neighborhood to shelter in place, and a school system to shut down for the day. And I also read about a school shooting, this one in Santa Clarita, California. Out of the 46 weeks so far this year, there have been 44 school shootings. That's an average of almost one a week. And of those 44, 32 of those have taken place in elementary, middle, and high schools. Over the past 20 years since I was in high school, I have thought so many times that surely this will be the last time. Surely, now, we will make some changes. During the Babylonian exile, Israelites lived in a foreign land for longer than they could have foreseen. Were it not for God's word, their hope would have been lost altogether. The words of scripture, the familiar lyrics and tunes of the Psalms like Psalm 119, called them to remember a God that would never leave them. If they didn't have that lens— they didn't have the spectacles of scripture surely they would have forgotten who they were and that something more had been promised for them the poem in isaiah 40 is written as a word of comfort to people who have felt for a long time like they're worthless and like their god has abandoned them when the world grows more and more peculiar when all I see around me threatens to go blurry from the absurdity of it all May that be another reminder to cast my eyes on this particular lens, because out of all the voices that are calling to us from these pages, there is one voice that breathed into them all, that breathed over the waters of creation, that I firmly believe breathes the spirit into our lives still. These books, these Bibles, are a gift. May we always remember what sacrifice was paid so we might have them. May we remember that they are only worth something if we open them, read them, engage them, and if these words change our lives for good. I'm going to ask you to turn with me again back to Isaiah 40. I'll read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Hear these words of God And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus